This is the Meiji 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Hitomi Yoshio, Associate Professor of Japanese Literature in the School of Culture, Media, and Society at Waseda University. Dr. Yoshio is the author of Performing the Woman Writer, Literature, Media, and Gender Politics in Tomoda Toshiko's Akirame and Onna Sakusha, published in Volume 48, Number 2 of Japanese Language and Literature in 2014, as well as translator of a number of short stories by Kawakami Mieko, appearing in The Penguin Book of Japanese Short Stories and Monkey Business, among others. Dr. Yoshio, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Your research has examined the construction of the category of the woman writer, or Jōryu Saka, in the late Meiji and Taisho periods, looking particularly at Tamura Toshiko, among other writers, and destabilizing these categories and even the notion of authorship. In earlier episodes, we've been talking a lot about how the Restoration impacted female writers, noting some overlaps between female authors and female public speakers in the mid-Meiji period, up until about the creation of the Seito magazine in 1911. Could you pick up the story from there for us? How does the situation for women writers look when we get into the Taisho period? Oh, sure. I'm really interested in women's communities, both physical and imagined. And I'm interested in the solidarity that these communities create for women and the creative potential and also the messiness of it. So when we think about Meiji and Taisho period literature, we know how the bundan was so central to the way literature was produced and shared and disseminated and reviewed and read. And these literary groups were often highly exclusive. So for example, the Kenyusha writers, the naturalists, or alternative coteries like the Soseki Samyaku or the Shirakaba group and so on, But it was often hard for women to join the boys club. So when a critical number of women started writing in the 1890s, they were first given the label of keishusaka, or lady writers, as Rebecca Copeland discusses in her work and also in her podcast. And these included women like Higuchi Ichiyo and others like the novelist Miyake Kaho and translator Wakamatsu Shizuko. There's the famous lady writers issue, Keishu Sakago, in 1895, where the photographs of some of these featured women were on the cover. And the issue was a huge success, but the photos became very controversial because they resembled geisha headshots. So already you can see the ambiguous position that these aspiring women occupied in the male-dominated literary world. So in my ongoing project, which started as my dissertation, I look at how the gendered category of female authorship was created in the late Meiji to Taisho periods and extending to the early Showa period. And I'm particularly interested in the concept of joryu, or women's style, which were used to refer to female authorship in their works, used in combined words like joryu sakka, which meant women writers, or joryu bungaku, which meant women's literature. And these words started appearing in the media in the 1910s, and it was really that word that stuck all the way to the post-war period. And in fact, the Joryu Bungakusho, or the Women's Literature Prize, began in 1962 and continued until the year 2000, at which point it evolved into a different prize that sometimes included male writers. So you can really see the longevity of this concept. And Joryu didn't just mean women, but it meant women's style as if there was something essentially feminine about women's writing that naturally brought them together into a cohesive literary group. 
But in reality, there was nothing uniform about their writing. And the women were writing in a variety of genres and styles with sometimes very different political leanings. And ironically, the only prerequisite to be called a jurusaka was to be a woman. And as you can imagine, the label came with all sorts of kind of moral baggage as to what woman was and what kind of literature they should or shouldn't be producing. However, as problematic as this concept was, this new media category of jorusaka and joryubungaku gave an opportunity for women to come together and form a literary community in a really tangible way. So you mentioned Higuchi Ichio and Miyake Kaho, these pretty well-known female writers in the Meiji period. And then your own work has looked at Tamura Toshiko. Can you tell us more about Tamura? Yes. So Tamara Toshiko is a writer that I find fascinating when thinking in this context of gender and literary community. She's not so widely read today, but she's actually one of Japan's first commercially successful female writers and a major media figure in the early 1910s. She's a contemporary of Tanizaki Junichiro, was being introduced in the same pages in mainstream journals like Chuokoron. And Tamara Toshiko, I find, is an interesting figure that brings forward the element of performativity in the Judith Butler sense of the word, and in this context of the new media category of women writers. In fact, I would argue that performativity was a key element in the modern formation of this gendered authorial identity. So scholars like Ayako Kano and Michael Daira have written on this notion of, quote-unquote, acting like a woman in the context of theater and literature, and that to write as a woman was not a natural process, as was assumed, but an acquired one. So many male critics celebrated the so-called innate feminine nature of writers like Tamura Toshiko and other women of the period. So in order to succeed as a woman writer, these women had to mimic and achieve these models of ideal femininity and feminine writing that were somehow then tied to their inner nature. So Tamura Toshiko is an interesting figure within this discourse because on the surface, she appears to have wholeheartedly embraced this woman writer persona and would really play it up in the media, in interviews and essays and sometimes even photography. But in her fictional works, like in her story Onna Saksha, for example, which directly translates to kind of female writer, you can see that she was deeply conscious of the performative nature of this gendered authorial identity and critically exposed the process by which women writers had to learn to embrace the écriture féminine as imagined by male writers and critics in order to be successful. And another important context behind all of this was the discourse of new woman that was flooding the media in the early 1910s. And in Japanese, this term was referred to as atarashi onna or atarashiki onna or shinfuji. This was a global phenomenon. Reports were coming into the Japanese media from England and the United States about women's suffrage movements. And in literature and theater, all of a sudden, there seemed to be these new types of heroines who were openly rebelling against convention and morality. So if you look at the newspapers and magazines from this period, you find so many reports and special features that try to pin down and articulate who exactly this new woman was both in cultural representations and also in real life. And 1911 was a kind of watershed moment in Japan in light of this new woman discourse, because it not only marked the publication of the first feminist literary journal, Seito, or Blue Stockings, 
But it was also the year that Matsui Sumako debuted as an actress on stage at the Imperial Theater, starring in Ibsen's Doll's House. So from the beginning, New Woman was closely linked to theater and performance, appearing in these plays by Ibsen and other Western dramatists. And Tamara Toshiko herself had a brief career as an actress before becoming a writer. So she became the perfect embodiment of the New Woman figure in the public imagination. But this New Woman discourse was also full of ambiguity. Another woman writer that was celebrated as a New Woman during this time was the poet Yosano Akiko. And she was already an established tanka poet by this time and was writing actively on contemporary debates on issues like marriage and motherhood and women's education. And these two women, Tamara Toshiko and Yosano Akiko, would often be featured together in newspapers and magazines as new women. And their works would be advertised side by side. But Yosano Akiko was somehow considered the good new woman that was that still retained traditional feminine qualities, whereas Tamara Toshiko was labeled as a kind of bad new woman who was assertive and sexually liberated. So you can see the conservative undercurrent in this discourse, even among the progressive male intellectuals who seemed to support and promote these women. They were both featured in the inaugural issue of Seito, uh, Yosano Akiko's poem became kind of a manifesto for the magazine, and Tamara Toshiko has a story in there called Ikichi, uh, or Lifeblood. And so they were both semi-established writers, Yosan Akiko more so, to support the founding and the launching of this issue. But the way that they were portrayed in the media were very, very different. So Yosan Akiko would be characterized as kind of a good wife, wise mother figure. I mean, she had so many children, and she was a good mother, even while producing all these different works. Whereas Tamara Toshiko kind of played up this very youthful, promiscuous image, even though she was married. And the interviewers would comment on her appearance and her kind of flirtatiousness in the interviews. And so even looking at the visual representations in their, in their photographs, you see a stark contrast. And newspapers like Yomiuri Shinbun had a whole series on introducing these real-life new women, and Yosano Akiko was the first one to be featured, and Tamara Toshiko was the second one. It's really interesting to see the the contrast between the two, and really shows more what I call conservative um, attitudes towards what these new women were supposed to be. My students have always been fascinated by the fact that Yosano Akiko seems to have this conversion. You know, we so associate her with the Brother Don't Die poem in 1904. Mm-hmm. It seems this very pacifist, anti-war, anti-imperial poem. But then in the, in the 30s, she goes on her tour of Manchuria and comes back and, and is writing very patriotic poems, even saying like, you know, what can I do as a woman? Well, I can write poems mm-hmm. and this is how I can support the imperialist cause. <laughs> this might suggest then that mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't as much of a conversion as we might think. Or do you think that depiction of her as a good wife, wise mother is something that she would have been chagrined by or maybe something she would have embraced? Mm, that's a good question. So in that particular interview that I was talking about, she's on her way to Paris because she had just, I think, completed the modern translation of Genji, and she had a lot of royalties from that. And so she is going to Paris to meet actresses abroad and also sending her husband there. And so she herself doesn't necessarily try to express herself or promote herself as a good wife, wife's mother, but... I think the fact that she's writing in this genre of poetry and 
her being a slightly older generation, even though her, you know, tanka poetry is is very erotic and kind of sexual liberation. But I think at this point, it's really the media that is trying to shape her as this kind of ideal new woman figure that wasn't too modern in a sense. So we've been talking about this Seto magazine that gets published in 1911. And as you're saying, it's this venue where feminist activists like Hiratsuka Raicho and Yamakawa Kikue and Ichikawa Fusai are advocating new ideas of femininity and engaging in these international debates on women's sexuality and motherhood. And it's a very transnational movement, as we know. You were talking about this is the moment when women's literature starts in Japan. So do we see women writers engaging in a similar transnational movement of women's literature? Yes, certainly. We definitely see this kind of transnational engagement that you describe um, in, in the women's literature in the 1920s. So first of all, the idea of world literature or sekai bungaku had already been central to many publishing companies in the 1910s. And in the 1920s, the so-called empon boom flooded the market with affordable anthologies, both originally written in Japanese and also in translation. So publications like Shinchosha's Anthology of World Literature created a sense of global continuity among literatures across the world. And in addition to creating this global sense of literature in which the national can then be positioned, the publication and circulation of these anthologies created a broad historical view of literature that gave rise to the idea of literary history. So this modern construction of literary history in both the national and the global sense became especially important for women writers. Female readership continued to expand through the course of the 1920s, and Japanese feminists began to imagine a kind of alternative literary lineage for women, which allowed them to engage with the utopian idea of women's solidarity that somehow transcended um, time and space. So the writer that I want to highlight here is Ikuta Hanayo, who was a Seito writer, then went on to publish in the journal Nyoningejutsu, or Women's Arts, which became an important forum for women's literature in the late 1920s. So Ikuta Hanayo publishes a book in 1929 called Modern Japanese Women's Literature, Kindai Nihon Fujinbunge. And it's a fascinating book as the first attempt to kind of imagine a transnational history of women writers as an empowering source for contemporary Japanese women's writing. So the bulk consists of personal memoirs on women writers from the Meiji period and onwards, but the preface is really interesting to me in that it presents a kind of global and transhistorical vision that I've been talking about. So in the preface, she praises these literary histories as a new form of cultural knowledge that's central to the formation of national culture. And so Ikuta Hanayo creates her own version of women's literary history, naming a variety of Western authors like Sappho and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Christina Rossetti, George Sand, George Eliot, Selma Lagerlof, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Colette, and so on. And she connects this with Japan. She locates the 11th century Heian court as Japan's great literary past and highlights two women writers, Murasaki Shikibu and Seisho Nagon. And this is pretty much on par with what was being said in the more dominant literary histories in terms of the two Heian women. Then she makes a strategic move to emphasize the long period of silence of the women's writing until the modern period. 
recent scholars have done a lot of interesting research on women's writing during the Edo period. So we know that this silence wasn't exactly true. But for Ikuta Hanayo, it was important to emphasize this silence so that she could align the development of women's writing in Japan with the West, where women have also had a secondary position within the dominant male culture. So you can see that she's positioning the book in a global feminist context. So following the long silence in the modern period, she praises Higuchi Ichio and Yosano Akiko as world-scale or sekaiteki writers. And with these two women as models, she encourages her contemporary women to produce literature with the goal of making Japan's national literature on par with the rest of the world. And this transnational vision that Ikuta Haneo presents didn't just appear suddenly in the 1920s. You can actually trace this kind of thinking to the late 19th century with Jogakuzashi as well. And I don't have time to discuss Jogakuzashi today, but I'm really interested in the historical moment of the late 19th century when the critical interest in women as writers and also readers emerged hand in hand with the efforts to build a modern nation state. So when the magazine would introduce translations and reviews of the works by European and American women writers who were often Victorian novelists like George Eliot or Charlotte Bronte, it wasn't just the literary works that became a model for Japanese readers. It was the authors themselves that were presented as ideal models for young Japanese educated women. And speaking of the emergence of this transnational or, or global literature, your work has also examined translation and the receptivity of Western literature in Japan and vice versa. And one intersection of a lot of things that we've been talking about, woman writers, translation, Western literature, even the tale of Genji, is a short piece you contributed to the volume Reading the Tale of Genji about Virginia Woolf's review of Murasaki Shikibu's Tale of Genji. Can you tell us what brought you to this review and what were some of Virginia Woolf's reactions? Sure. Um, I actually started out by studying Virginia Woolf. So she, in a way, provides a foundation to my ideas and kind of aspirations as a feminist scholar. So when I was an undergrad, I read Wolf's famous feminist work, A Room of One's Own, and I was really surprised to see that she mentioned Lady Murasaki as one of the three great women writers of the past, alongside um, Sappho and, and Emily Bronte. So I'd always found this to be so curious that a 20th century British writer with no knowledge of Japanese could feel such an affinity for the early 11th century Japanese author. So I was really excited when I came across the review of The Tale of Genji written in 1925 when I was, I believe, a master's student. And it was such an aha moment. And it made me interested in the role of translation, since without Arthur Whaley's translation of The Tale of Genji in the 1920s, Wolfe would never have become aware of this Japanese classic. So Virginia Woolf herself had just published a collection of essays called The Common Reader, and her fourth novel, Mrs. Dalloway, had just come out. And she was already an established literary critic at this time and also considered an emerging writer. And she received an assignment from British Vogue to review the first volume of Whaley's translation. Wolf was a regular reviewer at this time for the Times Literary Supplement and other major literary journals. And it was apparently largely for financial reasons that Wolf wrote for the British Vogue, which was a commercial magazine. And she contributed a total of about five articles to Vogue in the 1920s. Anyway, in the review, Wolf is fascinated with the world of Genji and its author, Lady Murasaki. 
she's astonished to find such a high level of culture and sophistication in 11th century Japan, although she allows that some of its charms might be due to Arthur Whaley's skillful translation. So she's very aware of that she's reading in translation. And there's a sense that she finds in Murasaki's writing a glimpse of some kind of ideal type of art that she herself was aspiring to create, even as she finds her somewhat lacking when compared with the more recent great Western novelists. But she calls her a perfect artist in the end, and then Murasaki ends up in a room of one's own as three of the great writers from the past. And it's interesting that Wolf was writing at the same period as Ikuta Hanayo that I mentioned earlier. And even though the two authors probably never read each other's work, it's fascinating that they're both thinking about a similar kind of transnational women's history and solidarity at this precise moment in the 1920s. Speaking of translation, you've done quite a lot of translation yourself, and particularly of short stories by Mieko Kawakami. For those of us who are unfamiliar with Kawakami, can you introduce her and some of her works and then talk about what drew you to these stories? Oh, sure. Um, she's an amazing writer that I think everybody should read. Uh, Kawakami Mieko came into the literary scene in 2006 with a very powerful kind of experimental works that were somewhere between poetry and prose. And since then, she's published, I think, over 20 books in various genres, from novels to poetry to essays. And she's won numerous prestigious literary awards in Japan. And in her earlier work, she often wrote in the Osaka dialect, and she's originally from Osaka. And she uses the dialect as a kind of performative tool to express female subjectivity. And she's always consciously playing with this notion of feminine language. So her women characters would often speak in the Osaka dialect, where the men, the male characters, would speak in standard Japanese. And the conversations between the women give an impression of being very personal and colloquial, um, sometimes indirect and meandering, whereas the standard Japanese presents a very masculine world that seems to function on logic and rationality. So she's using language um, as, as one of the tools to express these gender dynamics in the contemporary world. And also what I find interesting about Kawakami is how much she's aware of the historical legacies of women's writing. So you can see this in so many of her works, but I'll just give an example of her most famous work, Chichitoran, or Breasts and Eggs, which won the Octagawa Prize. It's a novella, and the novella is an explicit homage to the great Higuchi Ichio, where the protagonist is named Natsu, after Ichio's real name, Natsuko. And the little girl that appears in the story is named Midoriko, and that's taken after Midori, the heroine of Ichio's most famous story, Takekurabe. And she's also published modern translations of Ichio's short stories. I think she has two. One is Takekurabe, and the other is Otsukomori. And, but it's not just Ichio, but in her most recent story, Wisteria and Three Women, or Wisteria to Sanni no Natachi, uh, she makes an explicit reference to Virginia Woolf. So for me, who came to Japanese literature through Woolf and the ideas about women's communities that's explored in her works, Kawakami Mieko is 
the perfect contemporary writer that connects together so many of my interests. I just love the way that she radically deconstructs and in a way reconstructs the relationship between gender and language and the female body and the way that she defies the notion of the body as maternal and natural and instead presents it as a kind of battlefield, as sites of psychological crisis and also linguistic crisis. So I love all of her works, but I have to say that some of my favorites are still her earlier works, which are very feminist and halfway between fiction and poetry. There's one that I love particularly, and this one isn't one of her well-known works at all, but she has a prose poem called no yaitemo yaitemo, which I've translated as The Elephant's Eye is Burning Burning. And I just taught this in my contemporary Japanese literature class at Waseda, and the students really responded to it. I love the dynamic and explosive energy that this piece has, exploring this figure of the young female artist and her kind of coming of age as an artist experience. But it takes place in the most surreal setting. She just completed a newly expanded version of the original novella Chitoran, and the English version is due to come out in 2020 by the translators David Boyd and Sam Bett. So everyone should look out for it. I had an earlier episode with Rebecca Copeland. She's also been translating a lot of more contemporary Japanese female writers. And mm-hmm. on that episode, and also in an episode with Indra Levy, we were talking about the the place of translation within the literary profession now. Is it losing its importance? Do you have thoughts on this, first of all? And then a second question that came to mind was, do you have a working relationship with Kawakami Mieko? Do you know her personally? Or what's it like translating a person who is still active? Yeah, so to answer the second question first, I do have a working relationship with Kawakami Mieko. So in the beginning, when I was translating her works, I, I was just a fan. And I just loved reading her works. And But actually, the translation gig came to me. I was asked by Shibata Motoyuki, who's a prominent translator and scholar of American literature. He has an English language magazine called Monkey Business which introduces contemporary Japanese writings to the English-speaking audience. And actually, this sadly ended in 2017 because of financial reasons, but there were seven volumes. And so for the second volume onwards, he's been asking me to translate Kawakami Mieko's works. So in the beginning, I was kind of asked, even though I was already a fan, so I was very excited to do it. And every year we would have these launch events in New York and Toronto to kind of promote the magazine. And Professor Shibata would invite Japanese writers to these events overseas and have a conversation with North American writers. And so I met Kawakami-san at one of those promotion tours. And we connected immediately. I'm very grateful to her because she's so respectful of translators. She's so appreciative of translators. She really takes time to kind of answer my questions if I have any, and also to just kind of leave it up to me to to make the interpretations. And she always acknowledges the translators. It's really great to be able to ask questions, especially for such an experimental writer as she is, especially in her earlier works. But at the same time, I still have the freedom to translate as I like. And the second question about the importance of translation in the field, I think in Japan, translation has always played a more important role in academia. And there are 
many scholars that are amazing translators, like Motoyuki Shibata that I mentioned earlier, for example. But in the U.S., you're often advised that you should wait until you get tenure to start translating. I think Inger Levy also mentioned this in her podcast. And I've heard this from so many people because they knew that I was really interested in translating. And of course, there are exceptions to this, like uh, Michael Emmerich, who's been an extremely prolific translator ever since he was a graduate student, and now he's a tenured professor at UCLA. But for most of us, we almost have to suppress the urge to work on translation, although it's ironic because a good translation probably reaches a far wider audience and arguably has as much or an even more impact to readers than an academic monograph. So I'm always touched when I meet other professors or people in international conferences, and they tell me that they've read a work or that they've taught a work that I've translated and how much it meant to them and the students. So there's not much in terms of scholarly recognition when it comes to translation, but that's motivation enough to keep me going as a translator. And you said you're teaching contemporary Japanese literature in Japan at Waseda University. Yes. And so I'm curious, you know, do you feel almost like you're building the canon of what's going to be <laughs> traditional Japanese literature 100 years from now, or whether it's through the literature that you select for your courses or what you're translating, making more accessible for the wider world? <laughs> I, I certainly don't think I'm building the canon, but it's translation that builds the canon, right? One of the biggest challenges when I'm selecting readings for the course is the lack of translation. So even though I think a work is really wonderful, especially you know works by women writers, for example, if I can't find a translation, I can't teach it. So I think one of the great motivations for me to translate is really just to make those works present in the English language so that it is available as part of world literature. And I think looking at translation in terms of like world literature and canonization is really interesting because it's only what translators have decided to translate that could have the possibility of even entering that canon. So, you know, some work like The Tale of Genji has been translated four times. And, you know, that's wonderful that a work can be translated so many times with different interpretations. But there are other works that's never been translated and that will never be included. So, yeah, I think translation should be much more valued than it is. It's <laughs> my conclusion. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.